Welcome to episode three of Reign of Blood, the true story of the epic clash between the Aztec and Spanish empires. What you're about to hear is part two of the rise of the Mexica, and I highly recommend listening to episode two first if you haven't already, because we discuss the origins of the Mexica, and we chart their rise from a group of barbaric nomads to legitimacy in the Aztec world. We also put the origin myth of the Mexica into historical context and discuss the founding and early growth of their island city, Tenochtitlan. We ended that episode in 1425, and when we left the Mexica, they were firmly established and accepted by the other Aztecs, but living in a world dominated by the Tepanecs in the nearby city-states of Azcapotzalco and Tlacopan. 1425 turned out to be a turning point for the Mexica, as the very next year would bring about events that would send them into a new phase of their journey, this time from established and legitimate to greatness and dominance, and all in just a few decades. Don't forget to follow along at intellectualbrutality.com, where we'll post photos and maps and other content to accompany each episode. And don't forget to like, subscribe, or follow Reign of Blood on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast. And now, please enjoy Episode 3 of Reign of Blood, The Rise of the Mexica, Part 2. Every good story has a turning point. When you're writing a script for a movie, there are a few different turning points, in fact, that you have to build into the story. There's the inciting incident that disrupts the hero's world. There's the break into Act 2, which sends the hero on a journey that he probably wasn't expecting to go on. There's the midpoint when things start to look up for the hero, and then there's the break into Act 3 when the hero looks like he's going to be defeated. And then there's always a final battle or confrontation of some kind where the hero prevails. In our story of the rise of the Mexica, there have been quite a few turning points already, as we covered in episode two. But the major turning point, the one that set them on a trajectory that would see them dominate the world around them, came in 1426. They had entrenched themselves as important allies of the dominant Tepanecs as they carved out a place in the current power structure based in the two Tepanec cities of Tlacopan and Azcapotzalco over on the western shore of the lake. Though they were allies, they still paid some sort of tribute to the Tepanecs, as did most of the other cities in the lake region. But there was one group of Aztecs who were able to maintain a degree of independence from the Tepanec Empire, and that was the Acolhua over on the eastern shore of the lake in and around the city of Texcoco. Over time, they had grown to rival the Tepanecs in wealth and prestige, and inevitably a war broke out between the two. The Mexica remained loyal vassals of the Tepanec kings, and their soldiers helped them to defeat Texcoco in a major war sending the Acolhua royal family into exile and bringing Texcoco formally into the Tepanec tribute system. But in 1426, not long after that war concluded, something happened that shook up the whole power structure. The Tepanec emperor, Dezozomoc, died suddenly and a succession crisis ensued. The heir apparent was a guy by the name of Tayahau, 
and the Machica and the Akolhua in Texcoco and the other city-states all lined up to recognize him as the new emperor. But Dezozomok's son, Maxtla, had his own ideas. Maxtla seized the throne in a coup and demanded the other Aztecs recognize him as the rightful emperor, but the other Aztecs didn't. The Akolhua especially saw this as an opportunity to exact some revenge and re-establish their independence. The city of Huexocinco, one of the cities outside the Valley of Mexico that was a part of this Tepanec Empire and will feature later in the story, they also declined to recognize Maxla. This put the Mexica in a real tough spot. They were Tepanec allies and had the most to benefit from the continuation of the Tepanec Empire. But Maxla was not the rightful emperor in their eyes. On the other hand, they weren't all that excited about the Akolhua over on the eastern shore of the lake getting any stronger either. In a sign that the Tepanecs may have been weakening in the eyes of the Mexica at this time, and also of the growing confidence on the part of the leaders in Tenochtitlan, the Mexica king at the time, Chimalmapoca, made the fateful decision that the Mexica weren't going to recognize Maxla. Not long after making this decision, Chimalmapoca dies mysteriously, and there's some evidence to suggest that Maxla had him assassinated. Historians aren't certain, but the timing is certainly suspicious. What is certain is that after Chimalmapoca's death, he's replaced as king of the Mexica by Itzcoatl, who also refuses to recognize Maxla as rightful emperor. But he does something else here that shows that the Mexica were not only fierce warriors, they were growing into savvy diplomats as well. As you'll recall, there are two Tepanec cities at this time, Azcapotzalco and Tlacopan, also called Tacuba. Well, Maxla's base was in Azcapotzalco, but the Mexica learned that the Tepanecs in Tlacopan weren't all that happy about Maxla either. And so Itzcoatl, the king of the Mexica, helped the Tepanecs from Tlacopan break off from Azcapotzalco and name their own king, who the Mexica and the Acolhua and the others duly recognized. Now suddenly the Mexica weren't defying Tepanec rule. They were defending the Tepanecs from Maxla the Usurper, along with their new allies. They had smelled an opportunity to level up here, and now suddenly they were an equal partner in this new world order, which historians today refer to as the beginnings of the Aztec Triple Alliance, because it consisted of three of the cities that joined forces to defeat Maxla. Texcoco, Tenochtitlan, and Tlacopan. The Mexica now found themselves equal to the Acolhua and the Tepanecs, the older, wealthier, and more prestigious groups at this time. Now they had finally arrived. The Mexica will eventually be the big winners from this alliance in just a matter of decades, really. And the Mexica king, Ixcoatl, becomes the first official emperor of this new Aztec empire of the Triple Alliance. But the hero of this entire project to overthrow the Tepanecs and usher in what would become the golden age of the entire Aztec world was not Mexica, but Acolhua. His name was Nezhualcayotl, and he emerges as the first larger-than-life personality of the Aztec Empire and one of the great figures in all of Mexican history. While the Mexica get the credit for much of the diplomatic maneuvering, it was Nezhualcayotl who led the military phase of this project. Think of the American Revolution for a second. You had guys like Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence and Benjamin Franklin engineering the crucial alliance with France 
and you had John Adams and James Madison and others creating the legal and the legislative foundations for the future republic. All of that was important in history-making, and it's part of what made the American Revolution a success long-term. But none of that would have mattered if George Washington couldn't figure out a way to defeat the British on the battlefield. Similarly, all of the Machika maneuvering and scheming would have been for naught if they and their allies proved unable to defeat the formidable Tepanek armies loyal to Maxla and actually conquer and occupy Azcapotzalco. This immense task was left to Neshuacayotl, and it was no small feat. He first had to rally all the other city-states to agree to raise their armies to overthrow Maxla, and then he had to convince them to put those armies under his command, which is never an easy thing to do, even amongst allies. I mean, think about World War II for a second, just 70 years ago. There have been few alliances in history that were as strong and as close and as integrated as the British and the Americans were in World War II. But even there, you have a split command with British and Canadian soldiers under General Montgomery and American soldiers under General Bradley and Patton and others. And they're each sort of operating in different sectors and have related but different objectives. And there was lots of political infighting at the top about who got what resources and who was going to achieve which objective. While for the Aztecs, remember, they're not very famous for getting along at this time. Some of these city-states are just years removed from fighting each other. The Machica army had recently helped the Tepanex crush the Akolhua. So pulling this alliance together and convincing them all to serve in this grand army under his command was no small feat. It tells us that Nesualcayotl must have been a pretty charismatic guy. And it also reinforces the reputation that the Akolhua people enjoyed as the most prestigious of the Aztec peoples at this time. And only an Akolhua could have held this alliance together. Nesualcayotl was a fascinating guy. I said earlier he was Akolhua, and he was. His father was the Akolhua king who the Tepanex defeated. But interestingly, his mother was Mechica, daughter of King Chimalmapoca, in fact, who we met just a minute ago. Very common for the different Mechica groups to marry into each other's nobility, just like the European royals did from the earliest of the Middle Ages well into the 20th century. After the Tepanex defeated Texcoco in the earlier war, Neshuacayotl went into exile as a boy. And eventually, his aunts, his mother's sisters, convinced the Mechica king to let him come to Tenochtitlan, where he spent some of his formative years. He grew not only into a great warrior and strategist, he also became a critical legal reformer. It's Neshuacayotl who's credited with implementing many of the laws that undergirded the new empire of the Triple Alliance. But he also became an accomplished and revered poet. In fact, he's remembered today as the Poet King. After the war to overthrow the Tepanex, he settled in as the king of Texcoco and invited artists and poets and scholars to his court and made Texcoco the cultural capital of the empire, which only increased the prestige of the Acolhua people and solidified their status as the most refined and the elite of the new Aztec order. While the Mexica seemed hell-bent on capturing the power and the authority that the Toltecs once had, it was the Acolhua who decided they were going to be the rightful inheritors of the cultural and artistic reputation that the Toltecs had. Just to give you some idea of how highly Neshuacayotl is regarded even today, he's been the face of the 100 peso banknote for many years, though that's supposed to be changing starting in 2022. 
His reign is considered the golden age of Texcoco and of the Acolhua, and his court was the place to be for anyone in the Aztec world. He was a formidable builder, too. He ordered the construction of elaborate palaces, the most noted and revered of which was the Palace of Texcoco in the hills above Texcoco, which you can still see today, the ruins of it anyway. It had a court for the very popular Aztec ball game, which was a kind of basketball-soccer hybrid. It had residences for guests and members of the court, and it had banquet halls and temples and everything else you would need to stay there for a few weeks or even months at a time and continue to rule your kingdom. It even had its own aqueduct system that brought water in from miles away to irrigate gardens and fill baths including his own personal bath he had carved into a cliff that overlooked the whole valley. Again, you can still see this today. The mechanics of the Triple Alliance were interesting. We don't know a whole lot about how it worked, but it was essentially the winners of the war to overthrow Maxla coming together and saying, you know what, guys, the Tepanex had the right idea with this empire thing. They just got greedy. What if we take what they built share the burden of maintaining and expanding it, and then we'll split the wealth and the power and the prestige between our three cities. To keep any one group from getting too powerful, they made this arrangement where the kings of the three cities would maintain power over their own cities and the surrounding areas, but one of those kings would serve as emperor and sit at the head of a power-sharing body composed of the kings and the nobles of all three cities. It was this body that oversaw matters concerning all the other cities in the tribute system and all the territories that they expanded into. They also divvied up the smaller cities around the lake amongst the three of them, with the Nostilan taking control of Xochimilco and Culhuacan and the other cities around the southern lakes. Tlacopan took responsibility over most of the cities on the western and northwestern shores of the lake region and Texcoco consolidated its power over the cities on the eastern shore and beyond. This basic geographic division also provided the general areas of responsibility for defense and expansion outside the Valley of Mexico. So you have the Machica guarding the southern frontier and pushing the empire south and southeast, the Tepanex and Tlacopan responsible for maintaining and expanding the western and northern frontiers, and the Acolhua from Texcoco pushing out to the east and the northeast. As part of their power-sharing agreement, they would work together to decide where to expand next and discuss how to raise armies and coordinate on campaigns. And then once a new territory was pacified, they would agree on how to split up tribute payments, how to share the cost of building and maintaining roads and embassies and forts, who would be responsible for protecting merchants and all the other infrastructure needed to maintain those new territories, and most importantly, to secure the flow of wealth into the treasuries of the Triple Alliance cities. That was the plan anyway, but in relatively short order, the Machica began maneuvering within this new power structure to essentially seize control of it, to the point where the king of Tenochtitlan becomes the emperor of the Triple Alliance almost by default, practically, though it was slightly more nuanced than that. Itzcoatl, the savvy Machica king who did much of the diplomatic work that created the Triple Alliance, he became the first Aztec emperor. Under his rule, the empire first compelled all the other Aztec city-states around the lake to join the empire, and they all did one way or another, most peacefully, but some had to be convinced by Triple Alliance armies. 
Itzcoatl then expanded outside the Valley of Mexico in full force, adding provinces to the south and the east. But it wasn't until Itzcoatl's successor takes the emperor's seat in 1440 that expansion really gets underway, and his name was Moctezuma I. Of course, he was just called Moctezuma at the time. We call him the first to distinguish him from Moctezuma II, who will be the emperor when Cortes arrives eight decades later. But under Moctezuma I, the empire for the first time breaks out and conquers or otherwise incorporates cities to the south, all the way into what today is the state of Oaxaca, and most importantly, to the east, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. This brought the Huastec and the Otomi peoples into their empire for the first time, among others. But more importantly, it had the effect of completely encircling Tlaxcala territory for the first time. We covered the Tlaxcala extensively in episode one, so if you need a refresher or you skip that part, I recommend revisiting episode one because the Tlaxcala will be important players once the Spanish arrive. Just as a quick aside, Moctezuma I gets a ton of credit for this early phase of expansion, and, and he deserves it. But he doesn't do it alone. Neshuacayotl is still very much in the picture at this time. He never becomes emperor, and we, we don't know why. He certainly could have if he wanted it, but instead he chooses to remain king of Texcoco, and he holds that crown until he dies in 1472. This means he's on the throne in Texcoco through three emperors of the Triple Alliance, all of them Mexica. And you better believe he's very much in the room and intricately involved with this early phase of expansion of the Triple Alliance. He didn't just go off to his palaces and write poetry after defeating the Tepanics. It seems to me he operated much more like an old mafia don sitting back with his wine and his tomatoes while the younger underboss runs the day-to-day operations. But nothing happens in the Aztec Empire without him knowing about it and probably approving it, even if just tacitly. And it wasn't just the military or political affairs of the empire that he was involved in. One later historian called Texcoco the Athens of the Western world under Neshuacayotl because of all those artists and scholars and intellectuals he brought to Texcoco to be part of his court. So, for example, when it came time for the Mexica to design and build that 10-mile-long dam to separate the fresh water around Tenochtitlan from the salty water on the eastern half of the lake, they turned to Texcoco and Neshuacayotl to help them design it. After Moctezuma I came Emperor Axayacatl, who brought more provinces to the east into the empire and then turned his attention west. Around the same time that Neshuacayotl dies in 1472, Axayacatl led armies that took territory immediately west of the Valley of Mexico, pushing out the Tarascans who retreated back to their territory around their capital of Tzintzunzan. Axayacatl then decided the time was ripe to launch a full-scale invasion of the Tarascan Empire, and his army of 30,000 soldiers was met by a Tarascan force of 50,000-plus, and the Mexica-led armies were thoroughly routed. It's been estimated that over 90% of Axayacatl's Aztec army was lost, many killed but many more likely captured and used for human sacrifice. It was such a complete defeat that Aztec armies would never again get into so much as a skirmish with the Tarascans, essentially fixing the western border of the empire on the frontier between the Aztec and Tarascan territories. After Axayacatl came Emperor Tizoc, who added little new territory to the empire and was assassinated for this and other failings after just a few years. Then came Emperor Awitzotl, 
the younger brother of Aksayakaral and Tizok, and the grandson of Emperors Ixkoatl on one side and Moctezuma I on the other side. Ahuitzotl reigned over what some historians call the Golden Age of the Machica. It's unclear when he was born, but he rises up through the military and is first and foremost remembered as a great general, perhaps the greatest Aztec general ever. He pushes the borders of the empire out to its greatest extent, especially to the south and southwest, all the way to the Pacific coast, and to the east where his armies began to encroach on the frontier with the Mayan world for the first time. He also, for the first time, brought parts of Central America formally into the Aztec sphere. He then took a pause from expansion and focused resources on solidifying the frontier with the Tarascan. They built forts and decided to populate the area around those forts with Aztec citizens relocated from the Valley of Mexico. And lastly, he completed the encirclement and the isolation of the Tlaxcala by conquering everybody else around them. But while they would never completely subjugate the Tlaxcala, Ahuitzotl does begin the first of what came to be known as flower wars, which were interesting. We alluded to these back in episode one, how the Aztecs went to war to conquer and to expand, but also to capture prisoners on the battlefield for human sacrifice. These flower wars became one of the primary ways prisoners were attained. They were regularly scheduled affairs, often set before big annual or seasonal feasts and holidays where sacrifices were a big part of the festivities. They were often coordinated in advance with rules discussed ahead of time between the two city-states that were going to go to war. How many soldiers they would each bring, where it would take place, almost like 50 street gangs in the movies negotiating what weapons would be used at the next rumble. These flower wars were designed almost exclusively for each side to acquire prisoners. And there's speculation by some historians that the Aztecs may have left the Tlaxcalans unconquered deliberately so they could conduct these flower wars periodically to essentially harvest bodies for sacrifice. This arrangement would have worked well for the Tlaxcalan as well. Again, somewhat speculative, but it makes sense if you apply some twisted logic. What we know for sure is that Ahuitzotl fixed the final border with the Tlaxcala and then turned around and conducted a series of wars against them that don't appear to have been designed to conquer them. So, you be the judge on this matter. Back home, Ahuitzotl was just as busy. He oversaw a massive expansion and modernization of Tenochtitlan. He built more artificial islands for housing and agriculture, expanded the causeways and the road network throughout the empire, and he greatly increased the size and the splendor of the sacred central precinct of Tenochtitlan, including, most importantly, the great pyramid dedicated to the gods Huitzilopochtli and Tlaloc. Aztec pyramids were interesting. They were step pyramids, essentially, very similar to the pyramids of earlier civilizations like the Mayans and the Toltecs and the pyramids at Teotihuacan, but with a couple of important distinctions. First, they almost always had two temples at the top one for each of the city's two primary gods. And second, they would always have twin staircases that would lead to the very top. Though this style was unique from previous civilizations, the construction techniques were not. Like the Mayans and the Toltecs and whoever the builders of Teotihuacan were, they would pile earth and rocks into flat platforms with sloping sides. And then they'd pack that in as tight as they could and then they'd cover the top and the sides of this platform with a facade of irregular stones locked together with mortar, leaving them a perfectly flat platform that formed the base of the pyramid. 
Then they repeat the process and pour more earth on top of that to form the next step slightly more inward, and then cover that with a facade of stone and mortar. And they do that one or two more times until they got the height they wanted. To finish it off, they would whitewash the facades with a thin stucco-like layer of limestone that had been smashed into powder and then formed into a paste, so they would gleam in the sunlight and could be seen from miles away. Like civilizations all over the world, the Aztecs and earlier Mexican civilizations equated the size and the grandeur of their temples and civic buildings with the power and the prestige of a particular city and its people. As cities acquired more wealth and power, they would want to show that off. But instead of building new temples or tearing down old temples and building new temples on top of it, they would simply repeat the process and pile more dirt and earth over the existing pyramid, extending it both up and out, and then facing that new mass of earth with more stone and mortar and limestone paste. They could do this almost indefinitely, and so you have pyramids all over the empire with three, four, five, or even more expansions. Ahuitzotl made what was the sixth and largest expansion of the Great Pyramid, what the Spanish later dubbed the Templo Mayor, and in its final form it would have four steps, or terraces technically, reaching a height of about 25 stories. That's smaller than the Great Pyramids at Teotihuacan, but still pretty high for an ancient civilization with no modern machinery or even beasts of burden. There were other pyramids, palaces, and shrines in the Great Central Precinct as well. Notably, just in front of the Great Temple was the smaller temple to the ancient god Quetzalcoatl, which was a unique circular step pyramid. Whenever archaeologists come across the ruins of a circular pyramid anywhere in Mexico, it's almost always a temple to Quetzalcoatl. This prestigious placement of the circular pyramid directly in front of the Templo Mayor tells us how important Quetzalcoatl still was to the Aztecs, particularly the Machica. Ahuitzotl's expansion of the central precinct was massive. When it was completed, it covered an area the equivalent of 20 football fields or so, with as many as 80 temples and shrines and palaces and other monuments. There are lots of great models and renderings of the sacred central precinct available with a simple Google search, and we'll put some on the blog post for this episode at intellectualbrutality.com. And just know that Ahuitzotl is responsible for much of the way it looked in most of these images. Ahuitzotl did one other thing I want to touch on because it's something that today we would call progressive, perhaps enlightened, maybe even borderline revolutionary. And that was his successful modification of the ancient Aztec caste system, which was inherited from even older, earlier civilizations across Mexico. We've talked a little bit about the Aztec caste system, which was extremely rigid. There were two basic classes, the nobility, called the Pipeltin, and the commoners, which they called the Masehualtin. This commoner or Masehualtin class was composed essentially of farmers and laborers when the earlier Aztecs first settled down to become agrarian societies. But later, it basically included everyone that wasn't a noble, including slaves and farmers, but also merchants and shopkeepers and artisans and anyone else. Separate from, but sort of parallel with, the nobility were the priests and the warrior classes. They weren't their own castes exactly, because they were made up of both nobility and commoners, and so they functioned more like factions than classes, and they were constantly vying for influence at court and with the people in the public square. 
So in the army, for example, the generals and the officers were almost always bibeltin, nobility, and the rank-and-file soldiers were almost always commoners, or masehualtin. There were also elite military units and fraternities, and these were primarily nobility too, though commoner soldiers could be admitted into these fraternities with heroic feats in battle. This process was fairly common, so common in fact that these commoner soldiers who were admitted into these noble fraternities had their own name. They were the Quaupili, and they were sort of semi-noble. And this title indicated that they were not hereditary nobles, but noble nonetheless. The priestly faction was similarly divided. The major temples in the major cities like Tenochtitlan or Texcoco would have been overseen by priests from noble families, as would the personal priests and the other religious advisors to kings and emperors across the Aztec world. But the priests that ran the temples and shrines and did the other religious duties out in the smaller towns and provinces or on the outskirts of the major altabets would not have been considered noble necessarily. There was almost no social mobility between these classes except for the case of the military guaupili as we alluded to. But even then, a commoner soldier would have to basically become a hero on the lever of Hector or Achilles to stand a chance at being invited into the nobility. And even then it was rare, and often any noble privileges they were granted didn't pass on to their children. Well, Ahuitzotl decided it was time for a change. Under his orders, the nobility opens up and starts admitting merchants, who the Mexica called Pochteca, into the club, at least the really successful ones. This says a couple things to me. First, it shows how powerful the Pochteca merchants had become by the late 1400s. We noted earlier how important trade was to the Mexica, and once the Triple Alliance gets firmly entrenched as the power structure of the Aztec world in 1427 and starts exporting that power outside the Valley of Mexico, the Mexica trade networks, overseen and manned by these Pochteca merchants, burst into action to exploit these new markets, to use a modern economics term. The Pochteca were highly organized, and over time, the emperors entrusted more and more of the infrastructure of the trade routes to the Pochteca themselves, including the maintenance of the roads and the messenger service we talked about earlier. And so soon after the Triple Alliance gets formalized, enormous amounts of wealth start flowing through the market at Tlatoloco via these Pochteca merchants and their networks. In this way, Tlatoloco specifically, but Tenochtitlan overall, becomes to the Aztec Empire what Venice and later Florence became to medieval and early Renaissance Europe. And it was only a matter of time before these Pochteca merchants acquired the same level of wealth as the great merchant and banking families of Italy, the kind of wealth that the hereditary nobility and land-based nobility could no longer ignore. The second thing it tells us is that Ahuitzotl had the power and the respect to do what was undoubtedly a very controversial thing amongst the nobility. I mentioned earlier that the empire was supposed to be overseen by the three groups of the Triple Alliance more or less equally, but that over time the Machica had wrested control of all of the institutions that governed the empire. Well, Ahuitzotl is the final piece in that puzzle, and by the time he dies in 1502, this is a Machica empire in just about every way that matters. But while he pretty much had complete control of the empire, he seems to have kept the spirit of the Triple Alliance alive. And the Tepanecs and the Akolhua don't appear to have been too bothered by the Mexica becoming the first amongst equals under the 
reign of Awitzoro. They continued to play an important role in the running of the empire, at least their corners of it, and they seemed happy with their share of the wealth and trade and tribute pouring into the Valley of Mexico from the newly conquered provinces, even if the Machico were accumulating more. And so this suggests that Awitzoro felt confident and secure enough to make a bold move like shaking up the caste system, something that was sure to have upset the nobles, including his own Machica nobles. Now, we don't know why he opened up the nobility. Was he a genuinely enlightened reformer who saw the immorality and the injustice of the caste system? Or was this a reward to the Bochteca merchants who had made the empire so wealthy? Was it a way to dilute the power of the nobility and fill it with more people who would be loyal to him? Kind of like the way Caesar expanded the Senate, or the way regimes today packed the courts and their parliaments to dilute the influence of the opposition? Perhaps the Pochteca were getting too powerful and this was a way to subdue them somewhat. We don't know. His motivation has been lost to history. As pure speculation, I would offer that... Given the other things we know about Awitzotl's reign, it's likely that he was a genuine reformer. Tweaking the caste system means taking on the powerful nobles who have never, anywhere in history, willingly opened themselves up to the lower orders. Those kinds of revolutionary changes have almost always come only after tremendous upheaval. And the fact that in Awitzotl we get not only the development or at least the formalization of something like an authentic middle class, we also get real, albeit limited, social mobility. And that's pretty remarkable to me. Again, think about what's going on in the rest of the world at this time. You have caste systems, either in name or in practice, virtually everywhere there's a highly developed civilization in the 1400s. From the feudal kingdoms in Europe to the Muslim caliphates in North Africa and the Middle East, to India, China, you name it. There are clear noble and commoner classes everywhere. And so I think it's more than a little significant that Awitzotl is doing something pretty revolutionary, not only for Aztec civilization, but for civilization in general. Again, we don't know what his motivation was, so we can't give him too much credit. But we do know that it was very unpopular with his existing nobility, especially and perhaps surprisingly, his Machica nobility. And we know this because one of the first things the next emperor does after Awitzotl's death was to quickly reverse the policy and stop admitting Pochteca into the nobility. And that next emperor's name was Moctezuma Chocoyotzin, a.k.a. Moctezuma II, a.k.a. the man chosen by history to be in the captain's chair when the cataclysmic storm hits the Aztec world. Moctezuma is a son of Axayacatl and a nephew of Awitzotl. It was common for a king especially, but noblemen in general, to have multiple wives and consorts and perhaps dozens of children. And so all of the kings were either nephews or sons or brothers of previous kings. Moctezuma also took the tried-and-true route to the throne by building a reputation as a great warrior on the battlefield. He was a general in the field for many of the conquests that occurred during Awitzotl's reign. And so he has real legitimacy emanating from the army. He assumes the throne in 1502 or 1503 when he would have been 36 or 37. And he inherited an empire of about 25 million subjects, 
38 provinces spread out from the Pacific Coast to the Gulf Coast to the present-day state of Guanajuato in the north to what today is part of Guatemala in the south. All total, there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of city-states all paying some sort of tribute to him. And those that weren't were being exploited by Pochteca merchants, almost certainly. He added some territory to the empire as emperor, but he didn't expand its frontiers all that much at least not relative to the size of the empire that he inherited. His reign focused on consolidating the gains that Ahuizoro made, which followed a common pattern where one emperor would add large amounts of territory and push the empire's borders out in one or two or more directions, and then the next emperor would focus on filling in the gaps, squashing any rebellions by the newly conquered people, and focus resources on establishing embassies and garrisons and ensuring the new provinces were integrated into the trade networks and, perhaps most importantly, the tax and tribute system. Moctezuma II is this latter kind of consolidator emperor, and his goal seems to have been from the get-go to squeeze every ounce of wealth from the empire that he could for the exclusive benefit of the Mexica. He made it very clear, very quickly, that the Mexica were now not only the first amongst equals, but the masters of the Aztec world. As we mentioned, he almost immediately ended the policy that allowed the Pochteca merchants and others to rise into the nobility. But he also eliminated the Guaupili, which was that much older policy we mentioned a minute ago that let warriors who showed heroism in battle join the nobility. He then set about remaking the court and the administration of the empire in his own image. But instead of doing it with competence and savvy and by currying favor with his allies and spreading the wealth like Ahuizoro did successfully, he decided it would be quicker and more effective to simply instill fear in the nobility, including in his own Mexica nobles. Like something out of Stalin's or Saddam Hussein's playbook, he went about purging every one of Ahuizoro's counselors and advisors his priests, his ambassadors, anybody that was loyal to Ahuizoro at one point, and he replaced them with his own loyalists. He then went further and declared that all of the important offices and positions that governed the empire would be reserved for the Mexica hereditary nobility only. And then he sacked or even killed any Tepanec or Akolhua official that refused to resign. To use a modern analogy, it's probably fair to call Moctezuma II the Mexica first emperor. Out in the imperial provinces, he was equally ruthless, crushing rebellions when they popped up, beefing up garrisons along the frontier and at strategic crossroads, and sending out armies of tax collectors to suck their subject city-states dry in the form of tribute or trade concessions. He also continued the wars against the Tlaxcala and others and may have even increased their frequency. This seems very likely because he drastically increased the number and frequency of human sacrifices from what was common under Ahuizotl too. And so he would have needed massive amounts of prisoners from wars to fill the quotas his priests now required. The takeaway here is that Moctezuma II is not a very popular guy. Not inside the Valley of Mexico beyond his palace walls in Tenochtitlan, and not across the empire. Under Moctezuma II, the Mexica seemed to have burned any goodwill or respect that Ahuizotl spent his reign building, and they seemed absolutely okay with that. This is Moctezuma and his allies within the Mexica nobility saying they've been the underdogs long enough, 
and they were the wealthiest and most powerful city-state, and they saw no need to act like they were equal partners with the rest of the cities in the Valley of Mexico. They were the big dogs now, and the rest of the empire and the other Aztecs, for that matter, would just have to figure out how to live with it. They were all getting rich from the empire that the Machica were shouldering the burden to administer, and so they can just keep quiet and let the Machica do their thing. This attitude is so oppressive and the policies of oppression so widespread and pervasive that it's not a stretch at all to call this a kind of Mechica supremacy that's being instituted across the land. It's ruled by fear and intimidation, if nothing else, and there are consequences to that style of rule, as we'll see. And so as we approach 1519 and the clash with the Spanish, you have this interesting dynamic in Mexico where, on the one hand, the Machica are in complete control of the empire and the emperor himself was all-powerful. Their frontiers with their two biggest rivals, the Tarascans and the Tlaxcala, are stable, though not expanding. And the borders of the empire are extending further south, east, and west and pushing Machica soft power and hard power into Maya territories. So all of that seems to be working in their favor. But because of the way the Machica under Moctezuma II have flexed that power, their control is in many ways fragile because it relied on fear and oppression as its primary tactics. The newer provinces on the periphery of the empire, in particular, have little loyalty to the Machica, and they perhaps haven't been around long enough to see any real soft power advantage to the Machica way of life, such as it was. And so they are participating in the Aztec Empire project because of fear of being occupied or forced to pay more tribute, or perhaps out of fear that their people may be taken prisoners for human sacrifice or as slaves. Many of them tried to revolt more than once, only to be subjugated again by swift Mexica retaliation. This is, to put it mildly, not a sustainable way to run an empire. Great empires only work to the extent that they do when the people that they rule over see some sort of benefit from it. If they don't, or if they do and then stop seeing any kind of benefit, that's when revolts happen. What this unstable reality on the ground also shows is that the story the Mexica tried to tell about themselves as the Aztec trash that no one wanted who took some swampy islands out in the middle of a lake and built it into the center of a grand empire under the protection of their god has started to go to their heads a bit. It also proves the point that we started this episode with. A story is a powerful thing. This story of the Mexica, however propagandized, united them and helped them reach the pinnacle of their known world. But to borrow another famous Hollywood quote, this time from Spider-Man by way of Voltaire, with great power comes great responsibility. Awitzotl seems to have gotten it. Moctezuma II did not. Because when you get right down to it, it wasn't these Spanish guns or their steel or their horses or their tactics or their smallpox that made the difference in this clash. All of those things were factors for sure. And we're going to cover all of them in due course. But it was a series of what to us, five centuries removed, looked like absolutely massive tactical and strategic blunders made by the Mexica, both during the events of the conquest itself and during the events leading up to the arrival of the Spanish. It was a literal comedy of errors every step of the way, particularly in the initial phases of this thing, that doomed Aztec civilization. So that's it for the Mexica and the story of how they came to dominate the Aztec world. 
This also completes the picture of Mexico on the eve of the events of the conquest. In episode 3, we'll place the final pieces on our chessboard as we introduce the Spanish characters to the story, who are busy building an empire of their own in the Caribbean as Moctezuma II consolidates his hold on the Mexican mainland. As we'll see, the Spanish, like the Aztecs, are not one homogeneous group of people. They too have a fractured history composed of separate rival tribes who have only very recently been united under one ruler, one god, and an appetite for wealth and land and glory that would dwarf even the insatiable Mexica. Episode 4 will be out soon.